This content may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion advised. The man's face had been beaten away into oblivion with a baseball bat. I helped, shook hands with, and exchanged pleasantries with a man who killed at least 13 people. I decided to get up and try to look out of the corner of the window blinds without moving them. As I peered out, I saw a girl or woman crouched in front of our door with her back to the door where I couldn't see her face. From Disturbed Media, join your host, Chad, for true tales of horror, bizarre happenings, and unexplainable events. This is Disturbed. Welcome back in, everyone, and thanks for joining me. This week, I'm bringing you four true, horrifying tales and a listener voicemail that will frighten and disturb. So sit back and listen close as we dive into the horror. We open the show hearing from Reddit user BobbyBrown666420, featuring voice work by Tanya Eby, and we're almost cooked alive. When I was 10, my parents and I went to visit my grandmother for spring break. My cousin also came to visit, and we decided we wanted to go to the YMCA for the day. My grandmother dropped us off and said she would come and pick us up in four hours. On that day, the YMCA was empty. There were a couple of adults in the exercise room, but that's it. We went to the basketball court, and after two hours of playing tag and shooting baskets, we were bored. I've never been the biggest fan of swimming, but... This YMCA had a pretty cool pool, so we changed into our bathing suits and headed in there. The pool was empty except for the lifeguard. We played a bunch of games and swam laps, but after about an hour, there wasn't much left to do, and there was no one except us to hang out with to keep things interesting. So, we decided to play a game of seeing how long we could hold our breath underwater. We stood in the shallow end near the clock on the wall, so we could time ourselves. Instead of fully submerging, We just stuck our heads face down in the water. We did this a couple of times, and I was winning. On our last round, I felt a tap on my shoulder. I figured it was my cousin giving up and telling me that I won. But instead, it was the lifeguard who told me to knock it off, or she was going to have to ask us to leave the pool. Since we were tired of being in the pool, we figured we would get out, get dressed, and go back to the basketball court until my grandmother picked us up. We only had an hour left anyways and the water was freezing. As we got out, the lifeguard stopped us and asked if we wanted to go into the sauna to warm up and dry off. The sign said 18 years or older, so of course, we were super excited that she allowed us to do that. She walked us to the sauna and unlocked the door. The door was glass, and the interior was made entirely out of wood. Inside, above the door, there was a clock, probably to help make sure you were not in there for an unsafe amount of time. The lifeguard stand was adjacent to the sauna, but if you looked out the door, you could clearly see it. She followed us in and went over to the thermometer encased in plastic and unlocked it so she could crank up the heat. I figured that she must have to turn it on each time, so I didn't think anything of it. 
both my cousin and I were very short girls, and so we couldn't see the temperature that was printed on the thermometer knob, but I know she was turning up the heat. Then she left and shut the door behind her. I thought I saw her lock the door, too, but I thought to myself, why would she lock the door when we might want to get out? I checked the clock and decided we should get out in 10 or 15 minutes. It was already plenty warm in the sauna, but now the room was blazing. It felt nice because I was so cold from the pool. After about 15 minutes, it was starting to get a little bit too hot, and my cousin agreed that we should leave so we can get dressed. I went to turn the knob on the door, but it wasn't budging. I thought maybe it was jammed, so I shook it, but it still wasn't opening. And then I let my cousin try. She couldn't get it open either. We figured the lifeguard would be back in a couple of minutes, so we sat back down and waited. The room was getting hotter now, too, and I really wanted to leave. I got up and started banging on the door and shaking, twisting the knob, trying to get the lifeguard's attention. My cousin got up and joined me. We started screaming at the top of our lungs for her to let us out, but she just stared straight ahead. I don't think there's any way that she couldn't have noticed or heard two little girls banging and kicking the door and screaming. Now we had been in there for about 25 minutes. It was so hot in the sauna that it hurt to breathe. It felt like my lungs were on fire. My eyes and skin were burning. We sat back down and put our towels over our heads because they were still a little damp and it made it easier to breathe. I was so worried about my cousin as she is a couple of years younger than me. I looked at the clock and saw that we had been there for 35 minutes. I got up and walked to the door again and saw the lifeguard still just staring straight ahead. Again, I tried to get her attention by screaming that we needed out and banging on the door as hard as I could, but still nothing. I was starting to get pretty dizzy, so I went to go sit back down, but the wooden seats of the sauna burned my skin. My towel was completely dry, so I put it underneath me to sit on. My hair was also dry, but I wrapped it across my face to cover my nose, and I squinted my eyes so that they didn't burn as bad. But I could still watch if anyone walked past the door. It helped a little bit. My cousin was laying face down with the towel over her head, not moving or saying anything, so I nudged her to make sure that she was still okay. She was, but I could tell that we really needed to get out of there soon, because she seemed a bit disoriented. It had been 45 minutes now, and I was extremely nauseous. There was no way that the lifeguard would forget that we were in there, and I thought she would have to come back soon, but there was this little voice in my head telling me that maybe she purposely locked us in there. Finally, a man walked past the door towards the pool, but for some reason, I just couldn't get up. My whole body was on fire, and I felt so dizzy. Luckily, this man wasn't going to the pool. He wanted to be let into the sauna and came back with a lifeguard. I saw them walking this way and immediately jumped up to grab my cousin. I knew now that for sure she had locked us in there because she pulled out her keys to unlock the door and let the man in. I didn't want to take any chances of us being trapped in there any longer. So as the man was trying to walk in, I was trying to shove our way out. As we were going out, the lifeguard started trying to shut the door and push us back with it. The man was clearly confused about what was going on and said, Um, I think they want out. The lifeguard let out a sigh and opened the door fully, and we ran away as fast as we could into the changing room. We only had about ten minutes before a grandmother was supposed to pick us up. We were both so shaken by what just happened that we didn't say anything to each other as we got dressed or on the car ride home. When we got back to the house, my parents were making us dinner, and I told them the story of what just happened. They thought that I must have been exaggerating, and they didn't believe me. 
I truly think that that woman was going to let us cook alive in there. The only bit of doubt that I have is what would have happened if we actually died. She obviously would have gotten the blame. What was her endgame? I'm 21 now, but I think about this interaction all the time. And when I'm in small spaces or I get too warm, I still have panic attacks. No one believes this story, and I get it. It's pretty absurd. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to ask for opinions, but do you think this could have been some crazy misunderstanding? Or do you think that she really just left us in there to die? And why? So, to the lifeguard at that YMCA, please, let's not meet again. Looking for even more Disturbed? Join us on Patreon for ad-free listening, shout-outs, and Disturbing Calls bonus episodes at patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast. Apple users can subscribe to Disturbed Media Premium directly in the Apple Podcasts app. Up next, we have an email submission from Michael, featuring voice work by Matt Bradford, and we have an unforgettable experience on the job. I was a Los Angeles police officer working Hollywood division in the 1990s. Generally, we worked A cars, which meant that there were two officers per car, but there were exceptions. Like if someone called in sick or was in court or whatever, leaving the division with an odd number of officers, a person could be assigned to what we referred to as a U-boat or U-car. Now, A U-car was a one-man unit whose sole function was to act as a report-taking car. An officer assigned to a U-car would respond to and investigate low-priority calls that would generate time-intensive reports. Well, these calls included things like burglary reports, theft reports, vandalism and stolen vehicle reports, abandoned vehicles, etc. Now, the U-cars would free up the A-cars or two-man cars for high-priority calls like crimes in progress. Anyway, my partner was in court and I was assigned to a U-car. I received a call involving a dispute between roommates and some kind of related theft. Upon responding to the location, I was met by a young man in his late 20s. He was standing on the large steps just outside the door of his apartment. When asked about what was going on, the man described a heated argument between his roommate and himself. According to him, at some point in the verbal dispute, his roommate had gathered up some belongings and stormed out of the apartment. The issue was that the roommate had stolen a number of items from the person reporting. These items included small valuables, such as a watch or a camera, etc., and a large radio cassette player, known in those days as a boombox. After obtaining identification from the man, we entered his small apartment so that I could see where the items had been removed from and begin my detailed report. I must say at this point of the story that I detected something off with this guy right from the start. I was known in those days for having an uncanny ability to sense danger. Most cops have this ability, but mine was at such a level that other cops would say, you know, if Mike says that guy in the crowd, wearing the blue shirt, is armed, that dude is armed. In this case, I was thrown off, as though I knew that something was off. I couldn't categorize it. I had no idea to what vibe I was getting from this dude. So I continued with the task at hand. The apartment was a very tiny, typical Hollywood apartment. Upon entering, there was a closet to the left, a large bed to the right, a very tiny kitchen straight ahead, and a bathroom off to the left. So, with the man sitting on a stool in the kitchen area and me sitting on the bed facing the closet, I began to fill out the report. I wrote a brief narrative explaining the dispute, 
then itemize the things that were described as stolen. Mind you, the entire time I'm working on this report, I'm trying to decipher the strong feeling that something is not right. I remained tactically vigilant while being polite and continued on with my questions and documentation. I was a bit cramped due to the tiny space between my legs and the closet that was directly in front of me. See, I'm six foot four inches and my legs did not have room to extend fully. I was pretty uncomfortable. I finally completed my report, rose from the bed, gave the man my card, and advised him to call our detectives if he had any more information on the case. I returned to my unit and rolled away. At approximately 20 minutes later, the dispatcher's voice blared through the radio. 61, the person reporting from your 484 investigation on Franklin Avenue is requesting that you return to the location. I rogered the call and headed back, assuming that he had discovered something else missing from the apartment. When I arrived, the guy was standing on the front steps smoking a cigarette. As I exited my vehicle and began to approach him, he stated, I'm just going to tell you, man, I killed him. He had my attention. I asked him to repeat what he just said, and he stated, I'm just going to come clean, man. I killed my roommate before I called you the first time. He didn't steal from me and never took off. Well, I requested backup on 187 suspect and took the unusual steps to take him into custody on my own. I mean, I was right there, and he requested that I return, and it felt right to just hook him up now as opposed to waiting for the cavalry to arrive. Once he was cuffed, I put out a code 4 to slow the officers who were headed my way. The guy began to talk about his roommate, so to avoid any issues with admissibility, I read him his Miranda rights, and once he waved them, asked the big question, where is your roommate now? He nodded through the open door to his apartment, and I was thinking, where could a body be in that tiny place? He told me to open the closet that had been inches in front of me earlier while taking the initial report. I opened the closet, and there was his very dead, very, very destroyed roommate, crammed into a mostly standing, half-leaning position. Now, when I say that his face was missing, I literally meant the man's face had been beaten away into oblivion with a baseball bat. And where did all this take place, you ask? Well, it turns out that had I been so inclined as to take a peek under the mattress that I'd sat on while taking the original bullshit report, I would have seen quite a bit of gore. I mean, there were teeth and jawbone fragments, brain matter, and lots of blood inches beneath my ass as I rode and tried so hard to decipher my instincts that something was not right with the guy. Oh, and let's not forget the faceless roommate inches in front of me. Once the other units and homicide detectives arrived and the investigation was completed, the story was brutal but simple. The two roommates got into an argument over what radio station to listen to at some point. One of them beat the other into hamburger with a baseball bat. Life and death in the big city. Though it seems so obvious, here is another brutal reminder that we never know who we are talking with. Now stay safe out there and always listen to your instincts even if you don't understand them. Get your voice on Disturbed with our hotline, available 24-7 completely free. Tell us your experience or just leave your comments on the show. Visit hotline.disturbedpodcast.com on your mobile device or computer. Next up is a listener voicemail from Justin. Take it away. So my name is Justin. 
I'm 18 years old. I'm a college student. I'm from around the upstate New York area, and I'm a big fan of the show. I listen to it every night before I drive into school. Um, my story revolves around um, a time when I was probably in middle school, probably around 7th or 8th grade, and I was doing an Ouija board. And I know it sounds stupid because um, people say a lot about the Ouija boards, but me and my friend were pretty dumb back then, and we decided to do it in, the, in a cemetery and record a YouTube video at it, out of it, which um, isn't up anymore. But anyways, we recorded a YouTube video, and we basically went to the cemetery and decided we were going to play and see if any spirits would contact us. Um, I didn't really believe in the Ouija board that much, but you know, I was willing to do it because my friend wanted to. So we got to the cemetery, and it was kind of late at night, but the sun was just about setting. And we were doing the Ouija board on a on a wooden trunk in the middle of the cemetery. And we started doing it, and we asked if anybody was there. Uh, on the first couple of times, nobody responded. But on the third or fourth time, the Ouija plate finally moved to yes. So I asked my friend if he was moving it himself, and he said no, but I still didn't believe him. So we asked again, and we had our, just our fingertips on the Ouija plate. And it still moved to yes, so that's when I, when I truly believed that someone was with us, and um, yeah, so we kept going, and we asked them what their name was, and their name happened to be Elizabeth, so we didn't think anything of it, so we kept asking the questions, and one of the times, the spirit told us to look to our left, which we weren't sure of what that meant, but so I started walking over to the left or looking and we seen that there was a tombstone and uh, someone named Elizabeth was uh, maybe like 10 stones away from us. So that's when I finally was convinced that this was a true story as somebody's name that answered us on the Ouija board was on a stone that was right next to us. So then I became very panicky and I was very scared at that moment. So I told my friend that I wanted to shut down the Ouija board and I wanted to go home because I was very scared. So we decided we were going to end the Ouija board, but she told us not to go or there'd be consequences on the Ouija board. Um, if you guys ever heard of a spirit called Zozo, um, it's one of the scariest spirits out there. And basically what she was hinting at is that she was going to have him get us. And basically if you encounter Zozo on the Ouija board, you have like 10 hours to live. And um, so that's when I decided... We were just going to shut the Ouija board down and throw it in the box and start running. So me and my friend started running out of the cemetery as the sun was going down. And um, all of a sudden, we hear a loud noise like a, like a boulder falling. And we see that something was things were falling over as we were running by, such as like stones off the, the parkway and um, everything. Things were rumbling and it was very scary like, but... Things were falling off the trees. Um, my friend says that he felt a stone hit him. So as this was happening, we just kept running faster and faster. And um, his house was only maybe half a mile away. So we ran and ran. And um, once we got back to his house, he went to get changed. And there were scratches on his back. And we are not sure how that happened. But they were good, good size scratches, three scratches across his back. So, um, yeah, that's my story. I don't know. I don't know what to say, but 
it was a very traumatic experience for me. And um, again, I love the show. And uh, you guys are, you guys help me in the morning when I'm on my way to school. But um, thank you for listening. And I hope I don't meet her again. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing; she'd invested three hundred thousand dollars with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. You're listening to Disturbed. Now back to the horror Up next is a submission from John, featuring voice work by Stephen Brink, and we help someone who isn't what they seem. Back in 2016, my cousin Ariana had just bought a beautiful new house in Citrus Heights, California, and was getting married, so I flew out from New York to stay with them for two weeks to hang out and attend the wedding. I flew in and we hung out for a few hours, had a couple of drinks, and then went to bed. I'm a vineyard manager by trade, so I almost always wake up early. That morning was no different, so I'm the first one up. 
I'm in a new place, and this is an awesome little suburb with beautiful homes all over, so I decide that I'm going to go for a walk. I look up on maps where the nearest gas station is so I can walk down and get an energy drink. I sort of plan a little route so I don't have to keep pulling my phone out and looking at maps. I'm going to take a few detours and just walk around the neighborhood, enjoy the nice weather, and check out some dream homes. Out the door I go. I'm walking down the street and I notice an old man sort of struggling to drag his garbage out to the curb. At the time, I'm 23 and in the middle of my mixed martial arts journey, so anything even remotely difficult, I look at as a workout. So I think, cool, I can drag some heavy stuff and help this old guy out. So I approached him and offered to help. He agrees and thanks me. I pull his cans out to the curb and he says that he missed last week's pickup and he has one more can on the side of the house and he would give me a couple of bucks if I didn't mind grabbing it. I'd just say, oh, don't worry about it, I got you. I go grab the other can and bring it out front. He shakes my hand, thanks me, and introduces himself as Joe. I oblige and introduce myself while also saying goodbye. This interaction is out of my mind and forgotten about before I even get back to the house. Fast forward about a year and a half and my cousin Ariana sends me a news article with old man Joe's mugshot in the thumbnail. The polite old man down the street turned out to be Joseph James D'Angelo Jr., otherwise known as the Golden State Killer. I helped, shook hands with, and exchanged pleasantries with a man who killed at least 13 people, raped at least 51 women, and committed hundreds of burglaries. And finally, we close out the show with an email submission from Patreon member Amanda, featuring voice work by Sarah Thomas. And we try to figure out who's at the door. About a month ago, my boyfriend Nick and I ventured to Carolina Beach, North Carolina to see a local band. It's about 40 minutes from where we live, so we decided it would be smarter to stay the night if we were going to drink. I'm a 30s female with a child so my boyfriend and I don't go out often. Excited that our daughter was with family, we were ready for a weekend of fun. I booked a small motel that was adjacent to the beach nightclub. The motel looked clean and had good reviews, and as we had stayed in Carolina Beach several times before, I felt pretty safe. We watched the band at the club and had several beers and met up with some friends there. We were at the club until about 11 p.m., then went for a walk on the beach in front of our motel. We saw a few people walking on the beach, which was normal for warm winter weather in the 50s. Our friends left around 12.30 a.m., and we were walking back to the motel when a woman started chatting with us in front of a room downstairs from ours. Just normal conversation. Where are you from? Why are you in town? Etc. She looked like a hippie-ish lady in her 50s and smiled at us. Nothing really struck me as odd about her. Afterwards, we went up to our second floor room and went to bed. I noticed that the deadbolt on the door was a little loose, but I was tired and didn't think much of it. The hotel was small and all of the rooms faced a small parking lot with about 25 numbered spaces. I remember calling to check in and the woman saying to make sure you parked in your numbered space or you could be towed. So we made sure to park in number 15. I never met anyone at check-in. It was all done over the phone and the room was already open with the key inside. It was small, with just one window with blinds facing the parking lot, a bed, and a small bathroom in the back. 
Around 1 a.m., I was awakened hearing pounding noises. I jumped out of the bed, half asleep trying to figure out where the noise was coming from. My boyfriend woke up as well, asking what the F was going on. I responded that someone was pounding on the door, not knocking, but beating their fists on the door repeatedly without stopping. My first instinct was to open it, but I stopped short when I honestly thought about stories I've heard on this podcast about people being lured outside thinking that someone needs help and bad things happening. What should we do? I whispered to Nick. Now, Nick is not a small guy. He's over six foot and a mechanic, so he's strong, a tough kind of guy. Nick said, ask who it is. So I stepped a little closer and loudly said, who is it? What do you want? The beating on the door silenced abruptly. I listened, but no response. I crept quietly to the door to look out, but realized the door had no peephole. What kind of motel door doesn't come with a peephole? After about 30 seconds, the pounding resumed. Again, I shouted, who's there? And again, silence momentarily, followed by pounding. I jumped back in the bed next to Nick, whispering, what should we do? I'm really getting scared. Nick said, let's just wait and see if they leave. We noticed that the motion light above the stairs across from our room kept coming on. I could see that there were shadows moving outside the one window that was to the left of the door. The pounding continued for about 30 more minutes, and I was getting more panicked by the second. I decided to get up and try to look out of the corner of the window blinds without moving them. As I peered out, I saw a girl or woman crouched in front of our door with her back to the door where I couldn't see her face. She was of small build, maybe 90 pounds, with long stringy dyed red hair down to her waist and a black hoodie and jeans. I stayed there, trying not to breathe or move the blinds, hoping that I would see her face or see if someone else was out there. I thought I had seen two shadows walk by the window, so I wondered if another person might have been hiding on the stairs across from the door, which was out of my view from the spot I was in. The girl didn't move a muscle, like she was possibly hiding there, waiting for us to open the door. Judging by her small frame, I thought she probably was not the one pounding her fists on the door. I jumped back into the bed and told Nick what I saw and that I was calling the cops and the motel staff. I walked quietly into the back bathroom and called the sheriff's station. I told the dispatcher what was happening and she advised me not to open the door and that someone would be out shortly to check on the situation. I called the motel number I was given for emergencies and got sent straight to someone's voicemail. I crept back into bed as the banging on the door continued another 15 minutes. It stopped abruptly, so I thought maybe the cops had come. I crept back to the window to peer out, but saw no lights or anyone outside the door. I hoped whoever it was had given up. Shortly after, the pounding started not at our door, but it sounded like someone else's to the right of our room, so I could not see that room out of the window. I don't think we slept at all. Hours of endless knocking starting and stopping until 5 a.m. As soon as it was light out, Nick and I went out of the door to look around. As he stepped out of the room, the neighbors to our right came out and asked if somebody had been beating on our door all night. We said yes, and that we had called the cops and the manager with no response. They said they had done the same, but never saw anyone. We left immediately, and I left several voicemails for the motel manager and got no response. I felt traumatized, especially wondering why the girl was crouched with her back to our door, why she didn't respond to me if she had needed help, and why the cops 
nor the motel had cared enough to even check back with me. I thought about the hippie-ish woman that had asked us questions before we went to bed. Maybe she was with them? I thought about that we had parked in the spot with our room number, and if they were targeting us for some reason. If maybe it was someone from the club that had seen us drinking there. I left several reviews online about the motel and experience. I searched stories about scams involving beating on motel doors, didn't find anything about it in our area. I just kept thinking that maybe an accomplice was outside the door, waiting to rob us, or worse, and how if they had tried to kick in the flimsy door, that they easily could have. My friends dismissed the story as some drunk, but my argument was that she didn't respond to me, and that she was so still. I'm thankful for this podcast because if I hadn't heard all of these stories, I might have just opened up the door without thinking. So to whoever was harassing us in the middle of the night in Carolina Beach, let's not ever meet. Follow our social channels on Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast and on Twitter at Disturbed underscore pod. Don't forget you can send in your own true terrifying tale either in writing or send us a voicemail. Head over to disturbedpodcast.com slash submit to see all the submission options. If you'd like to support the show and gain access to bonus episodes, ad-free content, and early releases, visit patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast or subscribe directly in the Apple Podcasts app. And a shout out to our newest Patreon members, Krista Martinez, Morgan Whalen, Dale Ray, Rachel Egan, Janelle Taylor, Alejandra, and Lindsay Singer. Thank you all for your support. Music by Carl Casey at whitebataudio and co.ag. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And don't forget to stay safe out there, y'all.